Well, good morning. Great to be with you guys this morning. And if you're new, welcome. Uh, great to have you here this morning with us. My name is Lucas. I'm the pastor here at Crossroads in Auburn, and we're so glad you chose to join us this morning. Um, we are in the book of Colossians. We just jumped in last week, and we're calling our study through Colossians. We're, we're giving it this kind of title, theme, all in all. And you'll see that phrase used in Colossians, but it's just a great summary of what you'll see throughout this entire letter as we, we look at the preeminence of Christ, that he truly is all that we need, and not just for the people in the church in Colossae, but he is all things for all people at all times. And so as we continue to look at Paul's letter to the church in Colossae, we will see this theme continually throughout it, that the most important thing he wants these people to know is that Christ is the all-sufficient one, that Christ is all you need, that there's nothing in addition to that that you need to add on top of the finished work of Jesus. And then we, we ended last week with this challenge to, to memorize Scripture together. And if you weren't here for that, that challenge isn't going away. We're going we're gonna to finish today once again, reading through this beautiful prayer that's actually in our text this morning. And I would encourage you to, to write it down, to maybe put it as the, the background of your, your phone screen, but, but to have that, those verses um, constantly on the forefront of your mind, to be reciting them, to be memorizing them, to hide them in your heart, um, that we might have them in times of need. Well, as we open this morning, we are going to pick up in Colossians one, but I wanted to share something with you first. I was reading a story of when Alexander the Great was actually heading into a battle. And he was there with his soldiers, and as they were seeing the enemy approaching and were about to engage in war, he looks to his side and he sees this soldier that's just trembling in his boots. I mean, noticeably terrified. This guy is just shaking and he's, he's looking around, and, and Alexander looks at the man and he says, Soldier, what's your name? And the soldier looks up to him and says, well, it's, it's Alexander after you. And then Alexander looked at him and he said, you change your behavior or you change your name. Right? There was this challenge he gave him in that moment that if you're going to bear my name, then your behavior needs to match my reputation. And he's not known as Alexander the Fearful, or Alexander the Timid, but Alexander the Great. And so he tells this soldier, you change your behavior or you change your name. That if you're going to bear my name, you're going to walk in a way that matches and represents me well. But why do I share that with you this morning? Because Paul is going to use this phrase in our text today. That as, as Christians, as the church of Christ, we are called to walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord. And so in the same way, Paul would say, are you going to take the name Christian? Then your behavior needs to match that of Christ. And if it doesn't, you're given the same decision that Alexander gave that soldier that day as they headed into battle. You either change your behavior or you change your name. This is the challenge Paul is going to give to the church in Colossae. And it's a challenge that goes beyond this church and this time. It's, it's a challenge that we receive today as well. As followers of Christ, are we living in a way that represents that noble name well? 
Well, let's go ahead and, and read our text this morning. We're going to pick back up in Colossians 1, verse 1, just for context. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and the faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. As you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who was a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray this morning as we open God's word. God, we thank you for your word, your living, active, powerful word. God, we come before it this morning with humility. Your word is truth. It is the absolute truth. And God, we pray that where there may be a disagreement, between us and your word, that we would humbly submit and surrender to your truth. God, we recognize that these words are living and active, and so there is practical truth for us today. Give us eyes to see it. Give us hearts that have good soil, that receive the implanted word, and that there would be much fruit within our lives. God, our desire this morning is to hear from you. So would you speak? Would you be glorified and magnified? And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Well, as we saw last week, Paul is writing to the church in Colossae, a church he's never gone and visited himself, and he's writing from prison. He's, he's sharing with them what he's heard as this faithful servant Epaphras has come to share with him the news of how the church is doing in Colossae. Now, to our best understanding, it's most likely that Epaphras, on one of Paul's other journeys, possibly in Ephesus, gave his life to the Lord and then returned to this small, tiny, insignificant town of Colossae to share with the people, and a church begins. And now he's coming to Paul in prison to share with him the state of the church 
What's been going on? What's been happening? What, what are the good things happening? But what are the dangers and the, the pitfalls that are before them? And these are all the things we'll see Paul writing to address. But this morning he starts with this, saying, We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, your love for all the saints, and because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. These three things that he begins by saying, man, we are giving thanks, praying for you always that these three things are present within the body of Christ there in Colossae. Faith, hope, and love. He also speaks to this in 1 Corinthians 13, the chapter of love, right? But he mentions these as well, faith and hope, when he says, now abide, faith, hope, Love these three, but the greatest of these is love. That these three things aren't optional within the body of Christ. In fact, we see different moments where where Jesus calls out a group because one of these three isn't present. Even Paul in writing in 1 Corinthians 13 talks about all these incredible things you could do, but if you don't have love, it's, it's a bunch of noise. It's a clanging symbol. Think of the Pharisees, a group that had a a faith in in the word, but there was not a love for those around them. Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. There was this religious side to them, but they didn't have love. They were missing it. Or even a group that's trying to, to infiltrate the church in Colossae, a group that was known for having all sorts of love, and it was all about pleasure and enjoyment, but but they were compromising their faith. Here, Paul is commending the church and giving thanks to God that all three of these are present. That there is a faith, that there is a love, and there is a hope in what is to come. William Barclay once said this, Faith without love is cold, and hope without love is grim. Love is the fire which kindles faith, And it is the light which turns hope into certainty. I love that. How all of these work together and are meant to be present within the body of Christ, his church. And so Paul's giving thanks first and foremost because I hear that these things are present with you guys. And the first is this faith in Christ. Now the relationship of faith to Jesus in the New Testament is expressed by various Greek prepositions. And we're not going to totally dive into this, but real quickly, I want to summarize these for you. First, when we were going through Acts, we saw this in Acts chapter 1631, the preposition epi, which means upon. And it suggests this resting on a foundation. So there is this faith that rests on the foundation of Jesus, on the finished work of what he did for us on the cross. But there's a second one in Acts chapter 20, which has the preposition eis, meaning to find a dwelling place in, or to abide in, to find a home within. And it speaks to this idea that this isn't something we depart from, that this is the faith that we we have a home and an abiding that takes place in this faith, that we don't leave our faith at church on Sunday mornings and go about the rest of the week and do whatever we want. This is a faith that we abide in, that we maintain, that continues with us throughout our day. 
But here in Colossians, it's a different preposition that is used. It's the letters E-N, and it has the implication of a place of security and to be anchored to it. So when our faith has Christ as its object, it is as secure as a house that is upon the solid rock. It is secure as a, as a ship that has an anchor that has been tossed out, that is sitting solid upon the bedrock. And no matter what storm or wave may come against that ship, it is grounded. It is not moving. It is steadfast. It is stable because of what it is anchored in, in Christ Jesus. He doesn't say, I'm thankful that there's some kind of faith you have in a higher power out there. He's, he's thankful that their faith is rooted, it is grounded, it is built upon this home and this foundation that is Jesus. That is something to give thanks for. A church that is grounded upon that, because that's a solid foundation. And so first and foremost, Paul is commending this church that their faith is anchored in the right thing. That your hope is... And your foundation is exactly where it needs to be. You've started off on the right foot. But then he moves on to say, also I've heard about your love for all of the saints. In John 13, 34, we read about this as a commandment. It says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you that you also love one another. Now, this is more than just a casual kind of simple love that you might throw out. Oh, yeah, I love them, I love them, and I'll be there for them when it's convenient and when, it, when it's in my best interest. But we're given a distinguishing title here for this love. Jesus says, as I have loved you, that's how you ought to love one another. Not a love that's only displayed when it's convenient or beneficial to self Jesus loved the disciples even when there was no love reciprocated. Jesus loved the disciples even though there was nothing for him personally to gain from them. Jesus loved the disciples even when it was inconvenient and came at the expense of his own life. Jesus loved them to the end. While they were betraying, while they were denying, while they were busy arguing over which one of us is the greatest, Jesus is still faithfully loving the disciples. And he says, as I have loved you, that's how you ought to love one another. That a distinguishing mark of the church should be their love for all the saints. Not for their best friends and their family, but for all the saints, there should be a love that is marked as being different. An agape love. And this is so contrary to the love that exists outside of Christ. And this is why in 1 John we read about it being a defining difference with those who are children of God. 1 John 3.10. It says, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. That if you want to see a clear, defining difference between those who are children of God and those who are not, look at the way they love those around them. And Paul here, he's saying, guys, Epaphras has come to me and he has shared about there is just this love for all the saints. 
that is something that you guys are known for, that was worth mentioning for him to me. And I want to write to say, we're giving thanks to God that that is present among you guys. In 1 John 4, 7, and 8, we read, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Once again, back to what we we started at with Alexander speaking to this soldier. If we're going to represent the God of love, then our behavior should be that of love. If you're going to declare, I'm a follower of Jesus, the God who is love, the God who demonstrated his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, he died for us. But I don't got time for you, and I'm too busy for that, and I really don't care about your problems. I've got my own things to deal with. It's not matching up. That as followers of the God who is love, our lives should be evident of that. That there should be a demonstration of a love that isn't always looking for, what do I get in return? Or is this the most convenient time, but a love that says, I'm here to serve. How can I help? This year as a church, we we started off, Jason got to share a message about how we're, we're really making it our aim to grow this year as a church and how we love one another. And not just in word and in tongue, but in deed and in truth. How are we practically loving those around us, our neighbors, those in this community, and especially those within the body of Christ. How are we striving to grow in that love daily? Well, the third and final mark here that he's giving thanks for within this church is this hope which is laid up for them in heaven. I think of the example of David when he describes his ultimate desire. If I was to tell you, I want you to write down one thing, Your greatest desire, that thing that you want more than anything, we would probably get a whole different range of of answers in here. But listen to what David puts. In Psalm 27, 4, he says, One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. What about when Paul writing from prison still, writes to the church in Philippi. And he's speaking of this this crazy debate going on within him. He's talking about how, well, I don't know if it's better for me to to die or if it's better for me to live because, um, I mean, I know it's better for you guys that I would live and I would stay here so I could help you, but this is what he says in Philippians 1.23. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. When he just lays them out on the scale, he says, it is obviously far, far better that I would depart and be with Christ. That there's there's no question about it for him. It is far better to depart and be with the Lord. Those are the words of a man whose hope is laid up for him in heaven. Those are the words of a man who's not just trying to escape prison. He doesn't say it would be far better that I could just be out of this cell and out of these shackles so I could enjoy some good food, kick back and relax a little, go wherever I want to throughout the day. No, he's, he's not thinking about, I just want to get out of this cell. He's saying, I just want to be with Jesus. 
I just want to depart from all of this sin and all of the struggles and all of the pain, and I want to be face-to-face with my Lord and Savior. And I want to be, as he would describe later about death, swallowed up by greater life. That's what it is as a believer. It's not a loss, it's a gain. It's not being swallowed up by death, it's being swallowed up by greater life. And Paul says, when I look at my choices here, guys, I'll be honest, it's far better if I could just go and be with the Lord right now. But then he concludes, but I think he has more work here for me to do, and so I'm going to be staying here a little longer. In 1 Peter, we have a great description of this hope laid up for us in heaven. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. A distinguishing mark that should be present amongst the church of Jesus is a hope that is laid up in heaven. Of a hope that says, man, I'm not scared of when that day comes. I long for that day to be with the Lord. My hope isn't placed in what tomorrow might bring or how much money I could earn or these things around. My hope is laid up in a place where it is reserved for me where it is undefiled, where it's not going to be taken or stolen or destroyed. And I can have a a confidence that that is what awaits me. We use the word hope in a very wishful thinking kind of way. I hope the weather's good today. I, I hope I can get this thing. I hope it works out. I hope that's not how it was used in this text. It is a confident expectation of coming good. It's not a wishful thinking. It's a guarantee. I know that this is what awaits me, and so I'm confident it's going to be good. And so I'm anxiously awaiting that day. I look forward to it with great enthusiasm. And he said, all of these things that are present among you are present because they're, they're of which you have heard before in the word of truth of the gospel. These are the things that were spoken to you when Epaphras came with the gospel to have a faith in Christ and a love that is present for all the saints and a hope that is laid up for you in heaven. But I wonder if if we were to be honest with ourselves, where are we looking to today for our source of hope? Is it politics? Is it friends and family? Is it an an opportunity with a, a job, a new position, a new career choice, or a newer education we're gonna get after? Is that where our hope lies? Because ultimately, if your hope is outside of Christ, it is always going to end in disappointment. If your hope is placed in any person or anything outside of Christ, it will end in disappointment. And if you look at your life and you see it being marked by disappointment, fear, anxiety, I would challenge you to go back and ask yourself, what am I truly living for? Where is my hope lying? That's why Paul makes it a point in Romans chapter 5 when he talks about hope that he he specifies this is a hope that does not disappoint. 
because it's not rooted in my circumstances and the situations around me that are constantly changing. It is rooted in Jesus, the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The God who never changes, who never leaves me or forsakes me. If my hope is in him, then it is sure and it is steadfast. It's not going anywhere and it's not changing anytime. That is the hope he calls these people to. It's a hope we see David declare in Psalm 39.7 when he says, And now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. A man who, who knew quite well what it looked like to be on the run, to be in dangerous situations, to have nowhere left to turn. And he says, No, my hope is in the Lord. Hebrews 6.19 says that this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. That it is an anchor to your soul because of what Jesus did, that we can enter in behind the veil, that we can go into the Holy of Holies, that we can be in the presence of God and have fellowship with God because of the finished work of Jesus. Where do you look for your example of love today? Far too often, if we're being honest, many of us are guilty of allowing the media around us and the culture to define love for us. And let me tell you, as entertaining as it may be, Hollywood portrays a terrible example for you of what love is. They give you these grandiose ways that these people display this incredible love in this moment and, and, and yet it falls short to demonstrate the true and enduring sacrificial love that is often displayed in mundane, ordinary moments of saying, I choose you today and I'm going to take out the trash. I'm going to put the toilet seat down. I'm going to do the simple little things to love you well. I'm going to serve you even when it's not in my benefit. I'm going to love you even when you don't love me in return. Even your spouse, believe it or not, will fail you as a perfect example of love. No matter how perfect their vows were on that wedding day and everything they promised they would be and they would prove to you and they would demonstrate, they will fall short at times. But Paul's reminding them that these are things you heard, that that love, it's, it exists in God. So if you want to see the perfect example of love, you've got to go back to the Lord. You've got to abide in the Lord because it's not present within you naturally. Psalm 136, 26 says, Oh, give thanks to the God of heaven for his mercy endures forever. His loving kindness endures forever. Some versions would translate that his steadfast love endures forever. That's the example we look to, the God of love. What about when it comes to the strengthening of your faith? Once again, are you looking to a person to strengthen your faith? That, man, every time I, I hear the words you say, it just encourages me. And, and so I'm going to continue to come back to you for, for encouragement and for now, we need people to encourage us daily. We need that fellowship within the body of Christ. But if, if that is where your, your faith being strengthened lies, is in another person to bring that thing for you, they will fail you. You will once again be disappointed. Romans ten seventeen tells us where faith comes from. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. 
So if you're recognizing that your faith is weak today, what you need to do is get back to the Word of God, that your faith might be strengthened as you see a God who has been faithful from cover to cover and isn't leaving. But then there's this this challenge almost that he gives to the people. He's, He's thankful that there are these things present He's thankful that these things have been learned by the gospel that Epaphras brought to them. But he also challenges them with this. He says, We've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you've heard before in the word of truth of of the gospel, which has come to you as it also has in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it also is since the day you heard. And he says, and knew the grace and truth, or excuse me, the grace of God and truth, our dear fellow servant Epaphras, and he moves on to say this, for this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. That you may walk worthy of him, fully pleasing, being fruitful, in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, he gives thanks that these things are present, but he says, we're continuing to pray that these things might continue to grow, that they might continue to increase, that they might continue to be present in your life moving forward. Paul doesn't stop it by saying, these things are present, guys. You nailed it. Just just don't let them go away, and you're good. He says, I'm going to continually be praying for you that those things are growing and are continuing to be there moving forward. He says that he's praying that there would be an increase in the knowledge of God. Why? Because he knows that a lack of spiritual knowledge is a constant source of error. And he's writing to a people that as we'll see as we go through the chapters, there's other kinds of false beliefs that are trying to creep into the church. That there is a legalism that's trying to work its way in. That there is a humanism that's trying to find its way in. And he's trying to speak against these things. There's even Gnosticism that's trying to bring its way in. And he even uses in our text today all these different words to speak about knowledge, understanding, wisdom, over and over again because for a people that are believing that they just need to be enlightened with this super incredible knowledge. And you don't need God. You just need to have your mind opened to all that is out there. He's saying, no, no, no. The knowledge you need, the understanding you need, the wisdom you need, it's of Christ Jesus. It's of his will for your life. And so he continues to draw him back to this. But he makes it a point to say, you need to grow in your knowledge of God. A wrong understanding will always lead to wrong action. And if you don't understand God's word correctly, if you don't understand God's character correctly, and if you don't understand God's will for your life correctly, it's going to lead you to wrong action. And so here he says, I'm going to pray that that continues to increase. This is a prayer that I've, I've adopted for this church, that we would be a church that continues to increase in our knowledge of God's word and our understanding of his will for us. And in fact, I want to give you a quick um, heads up. Next month, we're actually going to be having a course. Um, Jim Lucari is going to be leading as a four-week course that we're going to get a 
learn how to study and rightly divide the word of truth, a hermeneutics class, because maybe you're going, okay, I want to grow in my knowledge of the word, but I open it and I, I don't even understand fully how to read it or how to understand it or how to rightly divide it. Well, we want to help provide a way that you can grow in that and learn that. And so keep your head up. Next month, we're going to be having a course for four weeks to go through that because we want to be a church that is continually increasing in our understanding of God's word. Realize this. Maybe today's day one of following Christ. Maybe you've been following the Lord and growing in your understanding of his word for 50 years. But you always have room to grow. We're called disciples. We are learners. By definition, we're called to continue to increase always, daily. The moment you stop growing and stop learning is the moment your relationship stops moving forward. But the more you know him, the more you will love him. And the more you love him, the more you will desire to know him more. And Paul, a man who followed the Lord for his life, who dedicated his life to the service of God and and to, to teaching the truth to God's people, he writes this in Philippians 3, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. And you might think, surely, Paul, if anybody knows him, you know him. You saw him on the road to Damascus. You've studied the Torah your whole life. You're out there preaching the gospel and telling people, and yet he says, oh, no, I've got so much more to know about God. I've got so much more room to grow in my understanding of God's word and who he is. And Paul says his prayer for these people is that they would walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Paul also wrote this in Ephesians chapter 4 when he said, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love. Again in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 17, he says this, See then that you walk circumspectly or wisely, not as fools but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And so in contrast, if you don't know what the will of the Lord is, if you're not walking worthy of the Lord, if you're not walking in His wisdom, Paul would say, then you are walking as a fool, that you are being unwise, that you're not being careful in the way you're living your life. Because to be wise and to be careful and to redeem the time is to understand what the will of the Lord is. It's comforting to know that as much as we struggle with that question, God, what is your will for my life? This isn't something new. That even back here, Paul is writing to a church in Colossae saying, man, I'm praying that you would understand what the will of God is for your life. I hope and pray that that is a desire of your heart. That you don't wake up saying, what's my desire? What do I want to do? But that every day as you make decisions, it's going through the funnel of God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not about my will. My will is always going to have to come through the filter of God's will. And so, Lord, I want to know your will. And that's what I want to follow after. 
That's what I want to live for. And then Paul prays that, that these people would be fruitful in every good work. It reminds me of this, this man we read about in Psalm 1. Blessed is this man who his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. It says he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its season and whose leaf also shall not wither. And whatever he does shall prosper. This is the man that's blessed, who's meditating on the word of God, who's understanding the will of the Lord. And then it says that there is a fruit that is born from that life. Now, Paul's already acknowledged, hey, there's fruit present, but we want you to continue to bear fruit, continue to increase in the fruit that you are bearing. Just like this blessed man in Psalm 1. You know, there was a time that Jesus actually cursed a fig tree and it withered up and it died because as he approached it, it had leaves. It, it displayed this idea like it was bearing fruit and yet there was no fruit in it, right? A modern day version I love to refer to, that's decaf coffee, right? It looks good. It seems appealing and you're thinking, this has what I need. It doesn't. You're left with a bitter cup of regret and disappointment, right? <laughs> I'm sorry, it's just... Decaf coffee, it is the modern unfruitful fig tree. It is. It's just. And so here he says that you would continue to bear fruit, not just the appearance of fruit, but that continually through your life, fruit would be present, that your actions would display your belief and your identity in Christ, and that you are growing and increasing in this. This was his desire for them that fruit would continually be present. Now, many of us were probably guilty as we think about bearing fruit for the Lord of thinking of these grand, incredible ways that we can do that, right? You're thinking, how do I bear fruit for the Lord? Well, I need to go to Africa, to the bush, and I need to start sharing the gospel with people. Or I need, I need to find a way to reach every homeless person in Auburn and provide a home for them and a job for them, and I need to set them up and they need to know the gospel. Or I need to go do these big things, and I love what Charles Spurgeon has to say about the little things. He says this, Have you the ability to preach the gospel? Preach it. Does a little child need comforting? Comfort it. Can you stand up and vindicate a glorious truth before thousands? Do it. Does a poor saint need a bit of dinner from your table? Send it to her. Let works of obedience, testimony, zeal, charity, piety, and philanthropy all be found in your life. Do not select big things as your special line, but glorify the Lord also in the littles. That we would be a church that is bearing fruit, not just in the glorious moments that everybody sees and that we're going to get known for, but in those little moments. I love that emphasis here. In the littles. To be fruitful in every good works looks like glorifying God even in parenthood. When you're at home with the kids and nobody sees and you're exhausted. In hospitality and bringing someone into your home and loving them well through your service. In child care so that we can enjoy the benefits of focusing and, and having these conversations and looking through this undistracted and in the service to the least of these. 
who may never say thank you, who may never be able to return the favor. Now that we would be a church and a people who can bear fruit in those ways, in the littles. Now Paul has made it a point in this section to continually push the church further, to greater growth, to greater fruit. And some might say, Paul's being a little critical here, right? He, he just acknowledged these things are present. Why is he continually pushing that they would grow in it? Why isn't there just a good attaboy? Why does he have to be critical to say, you need to keep growing, you need to keep increasing? I would argue that what we see here is true love that Paul has for these people. Because realize this, the church is described by having what kind of relationship with the Lord. It's not a friendship, although we are a friend of God, but we're told we are in a marriage with Christ, that we are the bride of Christ, His church. And ask anyone who's been married for even a couple years, and they will tell you that you don't have a great marriage five years, 10 years, 15, 20, 30, 40 down the road because you started with all the right things. Because on our wedding day, everything that needed to be there, the communication, the understanding, the patience, the love, the support was there. So we're good. We, we started off on the right foot, so we can just coast from here on out. It was present on the wedding day. I'm sure 50 years later, it'll be present still. No, it's something you have to continually work at. And the, the day you stop being intentional in your marriage is the day your marriage starts to go downhill. Here, Paul cares for these people, and he knows if you're not intentional about your relationship with the Lord, our default as human beings that are riddled with sin is not to draw closer to the Lord. Our default is actually to drift away from Him. And it doesn't take long for you to just go on cruise control and realize, how have I gotten so far away? How have so many of these spiritual disciplines that were once present just completely left because you stopped getting up and being intentional about your pursuit of the Lord and your practice of these things. And no matter how great your marriage started, if there isn't that same intentional communication, pursuing each other, growing in patience and love and challenging each other towards good works, that marriage is not going to be healthy. And for many, it may not even last. Here, Paul cares too much for these people to say, those things are present, you're good. No, 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 you better be so intentional about continually increasing in these things and pursuing the Lord. Paul knows that just because the churches start off well doesn't mean they can take their foot off the gas. And it reminds me of a church that was given a message in Revelation 2, the church of Ephesus. When the Lord said, I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars, and have preserved and have patience, excuse me, persevered, and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. And you're like, this church is nailing it, right? Where do I go to that church? And then he says this, nevertheless, I have this against you that you left your first love. That they left their first love. They've done so many things well, but you've, you've left your first love. You've got distracted with other things. And what does he tell them to do? Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works 
or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Maybe some of us this morning, the Lord even now is, is speaking to our heart and we're realizing there's a lot of good things present, but I have left my first love. And his word for you this morning would be the same, that you would repent, that you would return, that you would remember. And Paul here continues to challenge these people with this. He says that increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy. That phrase, patience and long-suffering with joy. It's one that if you've, if you've read it before, you kind of just grimace a little bit and you're like, oh, don't remind me, right? It's when you come to James and it says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials and you're like, oh, don't remind me, right? To count it all joy. Here, to have a joy and a patience and a long suffering. I read a poem this week that I feel like just speaks to this truth so well. I want to read it to you. It says this, there once was an oyster whose story I tell who found that sand had got under his shell. Just one little grain, but it gave him much pain. For oysters have feelings, although they're so plain. Now did he berate the working of fate, which had led him to such a deplorable state? Did he curse out the government, call for an election? No, as he lay on the shelf, he said to himself, if I cannot remove it, I'll try to improve it. So the years rolled by, as years always do, and he came to his ultimate destiny, stew. And this small grain of sand, which had bothered him so, was a beautiful pearl, all richly aglow. Now this tale has a moral, for isn't it grand what an oyster can do with a morsel of sand? What couldn't we do if we'd only begin with all of the things that got under our skin. Mm, I love that. Not only does it have that great punchline, you're like, ah, oh, Stu, good one, right? But that challenge to say, if I can't remove it, I'll try to improve it. Those little things that just get under your skin, those things that push your buttons, right? We've all got them. And those things that just, mm, right? Oh, if this could just be removed from my life, everything would be so much better. But I love within even a simple poem that challenge. What if you didn't pray, God, remove it. God, take it away. God, get me out of this. What if you started praying, Lord, show me how to improve it. Show me how to grow through this situation. Like Paul, after he had prayed again and again and again, Lord, remove this thorn in my flesh. And then finally, what does he say? Okay, you're not going to remove it, then I'm going to boast in my weakness because when I'm weak, you are strong. That's a guy who says, all right, you're not going to remove it, then I'm going to improve it. I'm going to use it for your glory. What are those situations for you? Is it a job? Is it, is it a relationship? Is it some kind of family issue that is going on or just something personal that's a struggle for you, a health issue? That you just constantly pray, Lord, why don't you remove this? Why won't you take it away? And what if in turn you started praying, Lord, show me how this could be for my good. Show me how I could grow through this. First Peter talks about these various trials that we go through. 
And it talks about how when we go through these, they refine us and we come forth as gold. You know the way a blacksmith would know when the gold was purified? is that it said they would continue to heat it up, right? The impurities come to the top, you scrape them off. They'd continue to heat it up. The impurities come to the top, they scrape them off. But the way they knew that it was finally arrived at the purification they wanted is that they could look over that cauldron and as they looked down, they could see the reflection. That's when they knew it's ready. And as we go through these fiery trials in life and we continue to say, Lord, remove it, take me off the fire, God is using that to bring those impurities to the surface so that we can look more like the God we're called to reflect. So that when people look at us, they see his reflection. That there would be less of us and more of him through every one of those things that gets under our skin. That they would be used for his glory. God doesn't waste a thing. So those trials you're in, those struggles you have, those aren't wasted. God can use those. I love the challenge here for them. And I know that this is an easy thing to say, right? Yeah, let's be a people who just have joy and patience and long-suffering. Done. And yet how impossible is that actually for us? Make no mistake, they're easy words to read, but to suffer with patience and joy over an extended amount of time is impossible. That's why Paul tells them, he doesn't say, Man, just, just lift yourself up by your bootstraps and you, you just keep going. He encourages them that you're not on your own. Because on your own, you will either burn out, give up, or blow up. And I'm sure we've all experienced that many a time. That we finally just can't handle it anymore and we just explode. Or we just give up. No, but Paul reminds them here. They are not alone, and it isn't dependent on their strength. It is possible because the one who can sympathize with your weakness will be strengthening us with his might according to his glorious power. And so he says, man, I'm praying that you continue to suffer well, that you continue to be patient and have joy through those trials because the one that is with you, the one that is for you, he has enough strength for anything you're facing. He flips the script here. He turns the page. Paul, up to this point, has been encouraging them. Here's what I hear is going on. Here's what I see that is present. And here's how I want you to continue to increase in those things. And then he closes out where we're going to end today. Just talking about reminding them, don't forget what Christ has done for you. Don't forget the incredible work that has been done to make this life possible. As he challenges them to walk worthy of the Lord, don't forget the one who made you worthy of that walk. Here's what he says. He says in verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light and has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of of sins. He starts by saying, man, we give thanks because we have been qualified. Do you know what that tells me? Apart from Christ, we are all disqualified. That because we've worked in sin, we have been disqualified. But Christ has qualified us. We are only qualified because of what he has done. 
And what are we qualified to? To be partakers of his inheritance. He doesn't say wage because a wage is something you earn. A wage is something you deserve. No, an inheritance is a birthright. An inheritance is something you're guaranteed because of whose you are, not because of what you did. And he says, you've been qualified by Jesus. Now you're a part of the family of God. You're a child of God. And so there is an inheritance that is yours. There is a guarantee of what is yours because of what he's done for you. This is that future hope that we look forward to. This inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, and reserved for us is because of what Jesus has done in qualifying us. Now, I don't know if you understand what I just said, that you've been qualified because of what Jesus has done. Now, you can say amen, and you can be thankful and joyful for that, but what you can't do is go, all right. Like, you're disqualified without Jesus. There is no hope of an inheritance without him, and he says, you don't have to do anything but receive my finished work. That is good news. But he goes on because there's more. Not only has he qualified you to an inheritance you could never earn or deserve, but he has delivered you from the power of darkness. Delivered carries this idea of being rescued. Do you know why you need to be rescued? Because you can't get yourself out of it. Without Christ's help, you will be lost and dead in your trespasses forever. And there is no amount of good deeds you can do to get yourself out of the pit you are in. You need to be rescued. And so he says he has qualified us, and he has given us an inheritance, and he has rescued us. He has delivered us from the power of darkness. We were bound by it. We were slaves to it. We were unable to pick ourselves up, and Jesus came along and rescued us. Amen? Now you're catching on. But not only has he delivered us from darkness and then left us to ourselves, Paul goes on to say, and he has conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. Now, I need to talk about this for a minute. This word conveyed, okay, it has a special significance. This was a word they would use when a kingdom would come and conquer another kingdom, and they would take those conquered people back to their kingdom, And they would make those people their own, right? The children of Israel, Jerusalem's destroyed. Where are they taken? Back to Babylon. They are conveyed, they are delivered from their kingdom to another kingdom. We as people born into sin and born into this world were under the power, the kingdom of darkness. That was our kingdom. That was our home. But because of the work of Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection, sin has been conquered, death has been defeated, the enemy has lost the war, and God doesn't leave us a defeated people in a defeated kingdom of darkness. No, what does he do? He conveys us, he delivers us from that place, a defeated people, and transfers us into his kingdom, his victorious kingdom of light to be his people and to live under his authority and to work for him. He doesn't leave us defeated. No, now we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. A people that were defeated that now are more than conquerors because of Jesus. He's conveyed us into his kingdom. 
But wait, there's more. Because he says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now the word redeem means to buy out. And it was a term used specifically in reference to the purchase of a slave's freedom. So the application of this term to Christ's death on the cross is quite telling, isn't it? Because if we're a redeemed people, then the obvious conclusion is that is because we were enslaved prior to his redemption. That we weren't a people that had it all together, that were living this beautiful freedom, and then he just gives us a little bit of a pick-me-up. That we were slaves without him, and he bought our freedom. God has purchased it. And what was the price for our freedom? The text makes it clear. We've been purchased by his blood. And we are given forgiveness, freedom from our bondage to sin to an abundant life in Christ Jesus. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. There is freedom. And that word forgiveness, it is a beautiful one. Because the word is literally translated ascending away. Ascending away. It reminds me of what Psalm 103, 11 through 12 says. It says, For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. That as he has delivered you from that bondage and taken you from a defeated kingdom and brought you into his kingdom where there is victory and life and freedom for you to be found, he doesn't do so holding over you all of the sins you've committed to remind you, you don't deserve this, you didn't earn this, this is who you were. No, he, he casts it away. As far as the east is from the west, it is gone, it is no longer who you are in Christ Jesus. Because now, who are you? Well, I've been qualified. I've been delivered. Now I have an inheritance as a child of God. And I'm in the kingdom of light, though I once was part of the kingdom of darkness. This is the reason Paul says, now let's walk worthy of it. Walk and live like you believe that to be true. This is Paul's challenge to them. Don't forget what Jesus did for you. Don't forget who you are in Christ Jesus. And when the enemy tries to convince you that you're not good enough, that you can't do enough, that you're too far away and you're too far gone, you remember that it, it's not dependent on me. This is an inheritance that I'm given because of what Jesus has done to qualify me. And so as a Christian, if I'm going to bear that name, I'm going to behave in a way that represents the Lord well. My prayer for you this morning is that there would be faith, there would be hope, there would be love evident in your life that displays a greater love and hope that you found in Jesus. Amen? As we close this morning, I would, li- I would like to invite you to stand up with us. We're going to close with this prayer that we're working on memorizing as a church. And if you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen for you. I'm reading from the New King James, so if you're not... Uh, Sorry, so let's go ahead and start in verse 9 of chapter 1. It says this, For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, 
fully pleasing to him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, for all patience and long suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Amen. And Lord, as we close this morning in a song of worship, God, I pray for anyone here today that hears these words, that so desperately wants to believe them and yet is still feeling a struggle, still feeling like there's an obstacle in the way, is still struggling to believe that that could be true for them. That because of what they've done, because of who they've been, because of where they've come from, they don't think that your blood is enough. They're not identifying as a child of God who has an inheritance laid up for them in heaven. They're identifying as a a lost person who's riddled with sin, who's in a defeated kingdom of darkness. But God, I pray this morning that you would renew their mind, that you would speak a better word, that those who are in Christ Jesus know we are more than conquerors because of what you've done for us. And God, I pray that we would live like it that we would love like it. Lord, whatever fiery trials we may find ourselves in today, I pray that we would not pray so much that you would remove them, but you would show us how to improve in them, that you would show us how you're using them to, to form us and mold us into your image. And God, that our continual prayer would be less of us, Lord, more of you. God, I pray as we close out with this song that it could be many things, but one thing it would not be is silent. Lord, that we would not allow such powerful truths about what an incredible work that has been done for us and has sealed our fate for eternity to become boring, to become insignificant, to become something that just goes right over us. These would be words that impact us, that transform us, that ignite that fire within us, and that we would sing out as a people that truly believe that, that our worship would be a sweet-swelling aroma to you, that it would be pleasing to you, and that you would be glorified. And Lord, for anybody that needs prayer this morning, for those struggling to believe it, for those that find themselves in a season that patience, long-suffering, and joy are not present, God, that they would come and get prayer, not as a people defeated, but as a people who are more than conquerors, who are in your kingdom, who live for you. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said,